I'm Ben, and I just became a gay uncle. I'm Tommy, and I've been Ben's gay uncle for 30 years. Are you ready for a double dose of gay uncle magic? Buckle up. Ask your gay uncle, 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 ask him all the questions that you have in your brain. Ask your gay uncle, you know that your uncle will do his very best to explain. He'll do his very best to explain. I'm here to introduce, actually, a friend of mine from years ago who I know is Rico. And since I've known him as Rico, he's turned into the Reverend Ricardo Avila. He is an Episcopalian minister. He's here to help us answer a question. But before we get to the question, um, Father Rico, I've got a question for you, which is, um, I'm always a little confused about minister versus reverend versus priest. Right, right. That is a very good question. I was already going to correct you, Tom. <laughs> it's a little confusing. Um, I think uh, with Roman Catholic, it's definitely priest. Uh, and actually with Episcopalians, uh, we go by priest as well. Um, minister is more Presbyterian, I think, and maybe Methodist. And I think pastor is more Lutheran. But, you know, some of that, that stuff is interchangeable. And, you know, frankly, you can call me Father Rico. You can call me Rico. You can call me Ricardo. I answer to all of those things. That's a long answer to your short question. Well, it's so great to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so our question that we got from Jody in Western Massachusetts that we would love your help in answering is, Hey, gay uncles. How do you reconcile one being Christian with one being gay, if that's possible? Thank you, Jody. Um, it is possible. And I, and I just realized I neglected to say earlier, I am also a gay uncle. And I think it's a, it's a special gift and ministry that we offer to younger people, kind of showing an alternative to how we might kind of grow up and be in the world. So how do you reconcile being Christian and being gay, if it's at all possible? Well, it's a hard thing to do, given all of the voices that are from a religious uh, origin that you hear out there. And unfortunately, like, like a lot of things, the loudest voices you hear are the ones that are most condemnatory. Uh, and certainly mm -hmm. that's how I grew up. You know, I realized I was gay when I was 15 or 16. Um, coincidentally, I was on a church retreat on an overnight. And um, the way I realized it is... Um, I kept needing to be near Father Bill. Uh, he had just started at our church in Milwaukee, and it was my first overnight anywhere other than with cousins at their house. And so there's Father Bill, blue-eyed, brown-haired, fit, very sweet, very smart. I was 15 years old, and literally he would walk into the little retreat room, and I would just start, like, shaking and I followed him around the whole 24 hours. I know, I know. Father Bill. I know, Father Bill. So, Rico, I, uh, Father Rico, I have to ask a quick question because the minister at my Episcopal church was named Bill as well, and he had brown hair and blue eyes. Is it Bill Swing? Oh, Bill Swing. 
No. Do you, no, Bill Swing was the Bishop of California for like 20 years. Right, which is why I thought it might have been the same one because you were in California. No, Bill Swing was the priest at the church where I went in D.C. Right, 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 right. And in, my, in fifth grade, I went on a church retreat with Father Bill as well. And, and, and the second you said that, I had this flash of something that I learned from him. And I just am going to have to say it. I was like 10 years old and whatever. Okay, so here it is. And this is what Father Bill would say. Down by the beach where nobody goes, there sat a lady without any clothes. Long came a hippie, swinging his chain, whipped down a zipper, and out it came. Two months later, all is well. Six months later, fat as hell. Nine months later, out they came. Ten little hippies swinging a chain. What? <laughs> she had a litter. <laughs> Wait. Oh, my God. And I have to say, I have said that maybe like ten times in my life. It is so... It, it, it's in there like more than the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Well, that that poses other problems and concerns, but wait, Father Bill Swing sang that to you guys? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Man, if I if I ever come across him, yeah, ask him. That's hilarious. So yeah. it, so it's a different Father Bill uh, entirely. I grew up in uh, in Milwaukee, uh, oh. Chicago, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, <laughs> and I never got that song. That's hilarious. So Father Rico, I want to I want to hear the rest of your story about your father Bill and how you saying you want you kept wanting to spend time with him and and you realizing that you were gay. So I was 15 or 16, I actually can't remember, but it was in the summer, it was in July, and um I went on a church retreat, first time away from family overnight, not with cousins, and um Father Bill was new at our church and I was just didn't know, like didn't know why, but I just had to kind of be around him and I would shake when he was around and Kind of the the uh, the high point of the weekend was the morning of the overnight retreat. Uh, it was in a school, so there was like a big boys' bathroom or whatever. So I walk in there to use the bathroom, and there's Father Bill, shirtless and shaving. Oof. And um, I will never forget it. I just was, and you know, he was a fit priest. He was a Jesuit. They always exercise, the Jesuits do. And um, I still didn't know. And then I went home from the retreat, and I was literally sick to my stomach for an entire week. And as I was sick with a fever and such, my dad made a joke. He said, oh, he must be in love. And, <laughs> and only when my father said that did I realize what was happening. So by the end of that week, I felt better, but I had that realization, oh my God, I, I'm gay and I, I'm in love. I just, you know, you're 15 years old. I'm in love with Father Bill. And I thought I'm going to hell, but like further down in hell because it was a priest, you know. So basically from age 15 to age 21, I was closeted and convinced I was going to hell. But what happened was that was in July and think by about February of that year, I couldn't contain the secret anymore. You know, I would go to church and I would just like look at him longingly and all of this. And so finally I went to um, I went to the confessional. I went to confess my sins. And back then they uh, they had an option of doing it through the screen where you don't see them, et cetera, or face to face. 
brave little 16-year-old, I did a face-to-face confession with Father Bill. Oh, my God. I know. And I said, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned and this and that. And wow. he said, um, what is your sin? And I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm gay. And I, I think that that might be a sin. And, and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, it's not a sin to be gay. It's a sin to practice it. Well, first of all, he said, are you sure you're gay? And I said, well, when I fantasize and I dream about men <laughs> and I wake up, you know, there's, there's stuff there, right? And so um, I said, so I, I think I am. And, and he said, well, it's technically a sin to act on it. And I said, well, what about masturbation? I mean, I don't know. I wish I were this brave now. What about masturbation? And he said, well, yes, technically that's a sin. And I said, well, do you masturbate? <laughs> I don't know. You know, my motives were probably suspect for going to that confessional, right? I wanted to be with him um, because I had this crush on him. And I said, well, you masturbate, don't you? And he said, well, we're not talking about me right now. (laughs) Good answer. I mean, it's a good answer. Don't turn around this confessional. (laughs) It's a great answer. And the answer is yes. Of course. But um, I said, so I can't, I can be gay, but I can't act on it. And he said, well, yeah, he's kind of sheepish. He said, well, yeah, that's technically the case. And, and so I said, well, I'm pretty sure I'm gay. And I said, but there's another thing. I, I think I'm in love with one of the priests at this church. Oh. And, you know, again, like, where is, this, where is this coming from? And there were like three priests. And he said, who? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I closed my eyes. You! <laughs> I just have to put in there, you need to see all of our faces. Like, Ben is frozen. Oh my God, I'm so nervous. And like, my shoulders are up by my ears. And Rico is cringing. Wait, okay, what ha- what happened? So you, you said, said you. you. I said, no, thank you, that was good. It's in stereo. No, but I just, I have to tell you, I was so pent up. You know, it had been like eight months of not telling anyone, like all this longing. You're a teenager, right? You got all this stuff. And so I just, I had, it was my one chance. And so I just told him everything. And uh, so he was quiet for a moment. And then he said, well, I'm flattered. Oh, that's, you know, thank you. I'm flattered. He said, but um, for obvious reasons, I, I can't really help you with that. Um, and so he was very sweet, granted me absolution, and then basically said, you know, if you ever need to talk about this, come see me. And I went to see him like two or three times in his office after that. And I, um, but then I stopped because, I, you know, he would give me a hug after each visit. But it was all very cerebral and talking about, you know, homosexuality and the love of God and Jesus and all of that. So ultimately, I, I realized I broke it off. You know, I realized I couldn't do this anymore. It was too... You broke up with him, yeah. I broke up with him. Uh, it, was, it was too painful. You know, I, would, I, had a, I had a part-time job at a McDonald's later that same summer. I had a late shift, so we closed the McDonald's, and it was near the rectory where the church was, and I would drive by and park and just sit there and look up at the rectory and think about him. And it, was like, it was like that. Wow. He was a sweet guy, just a really good priest. Um, But so the point of all that is to say, um, I spent six years thinking that I was going to hell because of who I was and my feelings. And amazingly, and unlike maybe many other LGBTQ people, I didn't lose my faith. Um, I somehow separated out Mm. in my mind the, the teachings of the church from the existence of God 
and God as manifested in Jesus Christ, which was my particular brand of faith, right? I, I, I managed to not throw the, the baby Jesus out with the bathwater, if you will. Um, <laughs> and I know that I know for a lot of a lot of people who grow up queer, it's it's kind of all or nothing. And I, I think like most things, it's more complicated than that. Um, I had looked up all these biblical verses before the podcast to try to, you know, wow you with them. Um, but there, there are there are passages in the Bible. I, I don't I'm not going to read them, but Leviticus in the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Romans, a, a, a letter written by St. Paul. First Corinthians, also written by St. Paul, that pretty much flat out condemns um, men having sexual relations with men. And what I would say to Jody, your original question asker, is um, the Bible is an inspired written work uh, that tells the story of a people of faith. And it's the story of their relationship to God and their development as a people. To me, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it is not the be-all and end-all last word on everything you should be in life. I mean, that's true with anything. Things change. People change. Attitudes change. You know, the Leviticus uh, strictures against homosexuality were part of a purity code. And it was a way to keep the tribe intact and safe. Gay men, men having sex with other men was not going to result in procreation. And, you know, these were people who were embattled on all sides and survival was really important. And I'm sure there are other reasons. I mean, it was probably considered an abomination in that time. But for us in the 21st century to say, well, because this text was written 4,000 years ago, I have to hate myself. It just doesn't work. And I personally would ask Jody and anyone else who's wondering I would say, do you do you care about God? Do you want God or a relationship with something uh, higher than yourself in your life? And if you do, that's what's most important. God created us, and if God created us and God, let's say, doesn't make mistakes, then you are beautiful and beloved by God, and you got to be who you are. Uh, there's a quote by a um, early Christian, Irenaeus, Saint Irenaeus. He said, "the The glory of God is the human being fully alive." And that's something I, I, you know, I try to live by. You have, you're supposed to be your full self. That's when you manifest God in the world. Mm. Because, you know, there are biblical scholars who have answers for all of these things. Well, St. Paul, yeah, but he was, um, he was a Pharisee and he was a Jew and he was really a rule follower. And there were these purity codes. So, of course, homosexuality is against, you know, is against God according to those rules. But we're not living in Paul's time. We're not living in the time of Leviticus. We're living in a time where we believe, if we believe, that our God loves us and wants us to thrive. Um, so that would be my answer. Uh, ultimately, um, it's about your relationship to to God. And, and there are a lot of people who don't believe in God and live perfectly wonderful and compassionate lives. And I say, you know, amen to that. But, you know, I, I'd, I, I'd rather... <laughs> Hmm. I don't know if I want to say this, but I'll just say, I'd rather have you be an atheist who loves yourself than to be a Christian who hates yourself. And I think maybe God would too, because there are different ways of manifesting God in your life, I think. And if you're going to go to church and then judge on everybody else around you, you're not manifesting the divine. So that's one answer. It's a great one, Rico. Thank you. Um, I, I'm wondering... You know, when you said you believe that you were going to go to hell, 
you like literally believed you were going to go to hell. It's not like this figurative thing, but at that time, did you really think there was a place that was hell and you were going to go there and you were going to burn? Yeah, I believed it. But I think even more than that, I just believed I was a bad person. Um, The hell part wasn't nearly as torturous for me as that, that conviction that I was wicked for having these feelings. And in some ways, that's, that's probably the hell that I did live through. Um, now, I don't know that I believe in hell. Or if it does exist, it's got different rules and regulations than what I can fathom. Because it's hard for me to believe in the all-encompassing love of God as we believe manifested through Jesus Christ and then hell. You know, hell is, hell is useful for haters, You know, it's a useful construct for haters, Uh, but it's not a useful construct for lovers. Um, I I think there is personal integrity. I think there is sin when you don't live up to your potential or when you hurt other people or when you aren't living out what God would have you do. Um, And when you, you know, are kind of an asshole. There is sin, um, but there's also forgiveness and there's mercy and there's self-forgiveness and there's patience with other people that you learn because you've been forgiven. So I like all that stuff. I don't throw the sin stuff out. And I think we, we do need to hold ourselves accountable at some moral level. And uh, if Christians are going to go around condemning other people, that's pretty much the opposite of what Jesus did in his life. You know, you know the stories. I don't know if you know the stories, but, you know, he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and traders and the poor and the unclean. And he healed on the Sabbath and you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And here are these religious leaders telling him, how dare you perform a miracle and here heal this man blind from birth on the Sabbath. Like a miracle is performed in front of them and all they can do is say you're breaking the rules. That, to me, is the difference between a Christian church that condemns because of the rules and because of the words in this Bible and then doesn't see the miracle of the human being that is in front of them. Yeah. I remember my mom, Ben's grandmother, Susie, her father was um, an Episcopal minister. Uh, Priest. Priest, thank you. She remembers him saying that sinning is missing the mark, that that's literally what it means, is missing the mark. She thought that the biggest sin was people not meeting their potential. That if you didn't go for your gift, and I remember her saying this to me, you've been given a gift by God and you are not taking that gift to its fullest potential. And that's the sin. She said that to me too. We were, she was teaching me how to play piano and she taught me how to play minuet and G. And I remember being like, I don't know if I want to play music. And she was like, Benjamin, God gave you a gift. It's your responsibility to take it. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> and yet here you are. And here I am. And I love music. Yeah. So you came out to Father Bill. You met with him one-on-one for a while. Eventually, you kind of, out of self-preservation, stepped back from that. Can you walk us through the next couple steps of that journey, how you got from there to uh, becoming... A, a reverend yourself, and then right where you are now. Ooh, <laughs> just a couple of steps there. <laughs> when I say walk us through those steps, I mean more in terms of like how they apply to you reconciling your faith with your sexuality. Uh, so 
I stopped. I broke up with Father Bill, and um, <laughs> you know, I, I I was closeted through the rest of high school, probably two years, and then I was closeted in college. I went to the University of Wisconsin Madison, and it was painful. Didn't uh, I? Didn't go to church during college. Hated myself. Had a few episodes where I, you know, I was kind of at the edge of a pier, ready to jump in, kind of thing. But uh, I came to a point where I thought I'm either going to deal with this or I'm going to die. And so I started dealing with it. I started seeing a therapist. I started thinking about, you know, what is loving yourself look like if you're gay? And then what happened was at age 27, I moved to San Francisco uh, to kind of, you know, live more carefree. I was more out by then. I moved to San Francisco and paradoxically, you know, Sin City or whatever, uh, I started going to church there. Uh, I was looking for community and what I found was my faith again. Um, and I met my now husband at uh, this small high church place in San Francisco, a church of the advent of Christ the King. Uh, and the priest there came to me in 2004 and said, you know, you have a calling to the priesthood. Uh, I can see it all over you. You have a reverence at the altar. You draw people to you. You create community. And the church needs you, you know. Mm. And so I laughed it off. I said, absolutely not. My faith is weak. I don't want to spend my time on other people's problems and I don't want to be poor, you know. And, but lo and behold, the seed was planted by him and it wouldn't go away. And I hadn't really figured out what to do with my life. So I explored it for three years. I fought it for three years, frankly. And then I gave in and I went to seminary. And in those same three years, William and I uh, became closer and closer. He made his feelings known and I said no for those three years. But then we just hung out so much together. Finally, a light bulb went on like one month before I started seminary and we became a couple. So I have, you know, I have church and God to thank for that. Uh, so then I went to seminary, which was hard and pissed me off a lot. I, I, I didn't agree with everything, uh, but I kept saying, if God wants me, then God's getting me. You know, that was my mantra. Hmm. I can't be the super priest. I can't be the one with all the faith or all the answers. I have to be the one who's his own little mess. And I think that's also part of living into your gift, making something out of the, the, the stuff that you thought was turmoil and wicked and bad and finding that there's actually good in there. And when I, when I meet people now, maybe someone will listen to this podcast, um, I just want to say, you know, the, God made you good. You know, don't let anyone tell you otherwise because that is not holy and you are holy and sacred uh, because when you become more yourself, Maybe that's where you find God, you know, not necessarily in a religious way, but in a way where you feel your own holiness and sacredness. I believe that there is a divine spark in each of us, whether we believe or not. And that divine spark is what makes us kind of pop, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> so while you were at uh, seminary school and in the aftermath of that, and, you know, while you've been a reverend, um, have you had any backlash for being out and gay? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the Episcopal Church is pretty darn liberal as far as Christian denominations go, and it's at the forefront. The Diocese of New Hampshire elected Gene Robinson as their bishop in 2003, and he was an openly gay man in a committed relationship. And that was kind of a first, not the gay part, but the openly part and in a committed relationship part. 
And that caused a big rift in the Episcopal Church uh, for a number of years. And in fact, there's, there's a big split. So the Episcopal Church is now that much more liberal because the conservative people who had a problem with Gene Robinson kind of left. Um, so by the time I go to seminary in 2007, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, hmm. So that's the no, I didn't get backlash part. Um, I will, however, say that I have never thought to apply to churches in Alabama or Oklahoma or Louisiana, although I do know that there are gay priests in those places. Um, But I was not going back into the closet. That was a fact. If it were the choice between priesthood uh, or, you know, being open, I would not be a priest. Um, on the other hand, the I had a job. I got a job in Long Beach as the assistant priest, and they had a Spanish service, and I was going to help out with that. And uh, the main priest, the rector, went and talked to them ahead of time and said, you know, I want you to know, Father Ricardo's coming. He's going to be here in a month, and I want to get get this out in the open. He's a gay married man, and will that be a problem? And people, oh, see, 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 no, no, it's bueno. You know, they were not. There were a few people, but a lot of people were like, whatever. You know, it's Long Beach, and uh, a few people left. So, um, you know, it, 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 it was and wasn't an issue. And also where I am now, you know, I'm at, a, I'm at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California, which is, you know, it's wealthy, white, um, mix of liberal and conservative, the home of Netflix. And uh, they hired me. You know, I'm this son of immigrants, gay, Latino, married man. And there were a few people for whom that was a problem. I think also I was just more liberal. I mean, I'm not like a, a radical in the pulpit, but I think it was probably too much for them to actually hear things about society and racism and all of that. And so we mm-hmm. lost a few people, and I think some of it was because I was gay, uh, and I think some of it was because their kind of conservative perspective was being challenged in church when they, I think, just maybe wanted to go to church to just feel comfort and community. So does that, that, that's, that's my answer to your question. I think, it, I think the Episcopal Church is really, really at home with queerness, um, sometimes more than I am, actually, you know, uh, and I, that's my own work to do. But um, what do you mean by that? Well, I think, um, I think there's a part of me that's still traditional, oddly enough. I mean, my upbringing or something. I never sowed my wild oats. I never tomcatted around. No offense, Tom. And um, I think, I think that it, I don't know. I, I I need to work on my transphobia. For example, there are some clergy who are uh, who are I don't actually know all the words for, but you know are are, are transgendered, and um, and it makes me uncomfortable. Because I'm the kind of gay man who was like masculine man, attracted to masculine man. And that spectrum stuff is hard for me. And um, I've, I've actually, every church I've been in has had someone who's uh, transgendered. And it's no problem, you know. They're like the rest of us, unique gifts and problems and struggles and hopes. But they come to church. And, and that to me is, 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 is the gift. But... Um, I think I might be one of those gays who sees a really a lot of flamboyant stuff, and when it's in a church setting, it makes me uncomfortable. That's what I mean. So this is really fascinating to me. That discomfort that you're talking about with trans people in the church around you, uh, does that come from like the the religious side of the equation, or is that a more personal thing, uh, just within you? Like, where do, do you know what I mean? Where does that come from? 
I think, um, first of all, it's not a big part of my life to have the, the transphobia is I don't wake up every day and say, I hope I don't run into someone transgender today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, but, but to the extent that it is a part of who I am and what I'm kind of trying to struggle with, um, I think it's more a me thing. I, I mean, I think I've, I've sort of worked on my sense of what my faith is in God and what God would have us all do. I've worked on that enough to know that um, Jesus would embrace everybody, you know, transgendered. And, and so it's, it's, that's the lesson for me to learn. I think it's a personal thing. Uh, I, I'm not a machismo kind of person. I think I just have such a, I, I have that, um, what is it? Is it cisgender? I have that kind of man, woman. I've grown up with that binary gender thing. And, and kind of invested in it a lot. You know, I am attracted to masculine men. And um, and that informs, mm-hmm. you know, we. I think it informs all of our outlooks. How we see people in the world. We go out and we do a hierarchy thing. Wow, he's cute. Wow, you know, all, these judgments, these little judgments. I don't know if I want to talk about this too much longer, though. <laughs> I'm That's feeling okay. sort of bad. Kind of bad. But it is, it's there, and, and it's a good thing, you know, because now language is changing and pronouns and all of this stuff. And um, it hasn't really found me that much where I am now, but um, yeah. I think it, it might be the next, I would, I would couch it in the phrase, this is what Jesus is calling me to work on. Mm. Maybe. You know, I think there's, there's also like a generational element in there too, where people of your and Tommy's and my parents' generation, like you said, were brought up in this framework that was this dichotomy of, you know, man, woman, straight, gay, and like everything is one or the other, and there's nothing in between. And my my generation, and really kind of the generations younger than me, are starting to really like deconstruct that and pull it apart and question it and challenge it. And I'm sure for some of the older generations that grew up as this being one of the pillars of their lives, these dichotomies, it can feel really uncomfortable to feel like those pillars, some of those dichotomies are getting broken down a little bit. Yeah. So I understand that, that this is something that you're having to confront and that that like makes you feel, you know, just something that's a challenge of yours. That's awesome that you're working on it. I mean, I like to think I'm working on it. You know, it doesn't present as much in my life. Um, I would say also the younger generation, the word that I would use is um, they've normalized a new way of being. Mm-hmm. And maybe because I wasn't part of that process, it doesn't, it's not as normalized for me. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my work. You know, it's not okay anymore for me to have those things, those kind of underlying thoughts. It's your friendly neighborhood producer, Jackie. We hope you're enjoying Ask Your Gay Uncle. If you'd like to ask a question for Tommy and Ben to answer on the podcast, leave us a message at 512-981-7332. Or you can email ask at askyourgayuncle.com. You can find us on Instagram at askyourgayuncle or Twitter at AYGU podcast. Go ahead and ask your gay uncle. I'm wondering, you know, because of this like amazing story you've told us and you discovering your sexuality and everything, have you ever had any queer uh, young, uh, what do you call them, constituents, Uh, 
people that you parishioners parishioners have you ever had <laughs> constituents employees have you ever had any <laughs> any like queer young uh, parishioners come to you seeking advice on like, this or them understanding their sexuality or wanting to know if they're going to hell yes absolutely and not just young people there are people my age who are come and are still mm. like needing to be told by a priest that they're okay and even then um, sometimes because I'm not a Roman Catholic priest, they don't still believe it. I, I, I sense that. Uh, so, yes, I have. And I've actually had people sent to me, you know, can you talk with so-and-so? She's struggling with her faith. She's she's come out to her parents and they don't understand. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And again, that's that thing of like, you've got to live into your gift so that you have it to share or live into who you are, rather, so that you have that at the ready. I'll tell one more story. You don't have to keep it in. But um, part of my seminary training was doing a three-week class in Austin at the seminary there. And we went down to a town in Mexico near the border called Piedras Negras. And Padre Miguel was the priest there. And he did a lot of ministry for the poor people and undocumented immigrants. I mean, and we helped out. You know, we served food on train tracks where there were like literally plywood shacks that people lived in. Um, And he knew I was gay from the moment he saw me. And I was scared because I was like, I'm in seminary. These are new people in Austin that I'm new friends with for three weeks, you know, et cetera. And I go to Mexico, you know, that to me is, I considered it a conservative place because my parents were conservative. And I always separated the gay from the Latino in my life Mm. because I thought, well, I can never tell my family I'm gay. And, you know, being a person of color in the gay community can either get you um, shunned or what's the word? Exoticized, you know. Mm. And so uh, those things didn't really mesh. So there I am. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to talk about being gay in these three weeks that I'm here. But I did to my friends. We became fast friends. But we go to Mexico. There's Padre Miguel. Right away he knew I was gay. And he started asking me questions in front of other people in a van. He's like, well are you married? Do you have a girlfriend? And I said, no, no. You know, all this stuff, you know, took me back to being closeted. And then finally I said, well, actually I have a husband. I was like, I'm just going to do this, you know? And he said, I knew it. Why did you hide it from me? (laughs) I said, I don't know. What do you mean? He's like, and then he took me aside later and he just made me cry. He said in Spanish, which makes it more intense, right? He said, don't hide who you are. God made you precious because God has a job for you to do. You're going to be a priest someday and you're going to be up there at the at the altar. And if someone in the pews is struggling with their being gay or lesbian and they're struggling with their faith and they see someone up there who's gay and open about it and celebrating it, it's going to save them. And you need to be there for that person. And I was just crying and crying. You're right, Padre Miguel. And... um you know, that's a freaking lesson for all of us. You are not you are not to hide yourself. It's not it's not even it, it's not even just for selfish reasons. So yes, don't hide yourself because you need to be your full self and that's how you live fully. But also other people need you to show up in their lives as your full self so that they can be inspired to do the same. That to me is sacred as well. And I forget what the original question was. So I don't know. Whatever it was, that more than answered it. I love that story. Yeah. 
That's beautiful. It's so true. And it was this Mexican priest. And I was, and you know, you know, when you come out to people and they love you or they, you know, it's this burden just lifts from your shoulders. I was like dancing on air. We were only there for like three days. And he did that like the first night. And I was just joyful. I mean, it's how heaven should be, right? So um, so the, the thing I wanted to add, the one thing I wanted to say is um, I really love Jesus. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think Jesus holds up under scrutiny. Uh, if all of this biblical, non, I don't want to say nonsense, but if all these biblical passages that are condemnatory, if you just push those out of the way and go right to the message of Jesus, the message is a hard one. It's like you must love your neighbor as yourself. You must turn the other cheek. You must sacrifice your life for the good of others. That's a hard message, but it's it's solid. You know, it's not, oh, Jesus loves me and so I can do what I want. It's like, no, Jesus loves me. And look at all the things he did in his life to show how everyone is accepted and acceptable. If I'm going to call myself a Christian, I've got to live that way and I've got to I've got to lend a hand when people are suffering. And that to me is a true Christian. You know, mm. that's what I love about my faith. When when some of the doubts creep in, I think, you know what, Ricardo, just do the good things. Hold the hands of the people who are crying because their father just died. Um, you know, call someone whose sister just died. Someone their sister just died in Atlanta. Called her up. Um, these are the things you do. You don't have to be Christian to do it, but uh, you have to... Um, do it to be Christian, in my opinion. So that's what I would want to say. So um, then I have a question for you guys. Okay. Ask. Tom already started answering it, but I'm curious, like, what, what, what has been your uh, relationship to faith? Uh, it could be religion or it could be just a sense of something bigger than you out there. Or it could be, you know, whatever, atheism. Like, what, how did you grow up? Uh, faith-wise, and how does it inform your life now? Tommy? It's a huge part of my life, I would say, um, having that faith. I sang in choirs, went to church as long as I can remember, and we were not the let's go to church on Easter and Christmas kind. We went to church every Sunday, and I loved the music, and I loved connecting with my family that way, um, it was also a bit of a drag. <laughs> I think that like in actually believing something, I believe that there is an outside force. I usually don't say God because God has a male side to it. And that just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And it shuts me down a little bit. Um, and when somebody says God, I just like, oh, poof, this is my version of God. And so that's how it works for me. I would call myself a Quaker now. Um, and I also dabbled in Buddhism. And as you know, you know, I'm a radical fairy. And so there's all kinds of pagan and Wiccan shit in there. <laughs> so I, I, I'm at a religious buffet table and I'm like, oh, I like the way they practice. Oh, I like what they say about women. Oh, I like that, you know, <laughs> that they, they use burning purses. <laughs> and so I have a deep sense that there is something bigger than me. And I oftentimes talk to that deep thing and I don't <laughs> I don't know if I would call it praying but my guess is I'm praying and there's much there are many questions that I have no answers for 
And that to me is where faith comes in and having something bigger. You know, and with something my father said, you know, my sister is mentally ill, Julie, and has had an incredibly difficult life. And I remember turning to my dad, who was devout in his belief, and I was challenging him. And I said, how does your God deal with Julie? And how do you reconcile your faith with someone who has done that to Julie? And he said, I'm on the front side of the tapestry and I cannot see what's on the back. And on the back is where God is. And that's where the threads are that make up my life. And I thought, cop out. That's a total cop out. You have absolved yourself and passed it on to someone else. And at the same time, I thought that is beautiful. And that's true that there is something bigger than me and I don't know what it is. And so I fall into that. And sometimes I get caught, like literally not, not like trapped caught, but like cradled caught. Thank you. Benjamin. I grew up going to church every Sunday, uh, just like Tommy. And it was a church that you, Tommy's mom, my grandmother played the organ in. Then we moved, my family moved to New Jersey when I was in like second grade and we kind of went to church, but not as much. And I got confirmed and I was like, I don't want to do this. And my mom was pressuring me to do it. Um, all my friends were doing it and I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll get the presents. And, <laughs> and so I got confirmed and uh, then we moved to France and I was in high school and an international school in Switzerland and nobody cared about well, very few people were religious there. And the people that were, were often not Christian. Um, one of my best friends was Muslim. I had other friends of other faiths. And I mean, you're talking about patchwork quilt. Tell me, I love the like patchwork quilt of just like ideologies and races and languages and cultures that were around me. And to me, that felt communal in itself. Like the differences of everybody felt like a community, if that makes any sense. I started to feel belonging in the notion of difference. And I think a lot of people that grew up in international communities will tell you some form of that, that they feel very comfortable around people that are very different from them. Um, so I kind of never looked back, I would say. Um, I personally believe in science and uh, the scientific method. And um, that's what I put a lot of stock in. Mm -hmm. And I was also, even when I was younger going to church, I mean, I was the kid in Sunday school that would challenge every single thing. <laughs> They'd be like, color in this drawing. And, you know, Jesus is everywhere. God is everywhere. And I'd be like, wait, so God is in this table that I'm sitting at? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, God is in the table. And I'd be like, oh, so God is in this pencil that I'm about to break? And they'd be like, yes. And I'd be like, well, is God in the toilet paper that I used this morning? And they'd be like, Benjamin, stop. And I'd get in trouble. <laughs> so yeah, I was like a little shit, basically. I liked what you said about uh, how the diversity is where you have felt your sense of community. And when William and I travel, you know, every summer, because he's a high school teacher, we go to Europe. And I just feel wonder, being in a whole other culture, I just feel this wonder and this kind of awe and joy at like people live in different ways and it's so lovely and this food I've never tried before and the way they act and how they dress and it almost it just kind of resonates so beautifully um so I, I don't know if that's what you meant but that's what I heard is that sense of joy and wonder yeah that's I think that is what I meant I think you described it better than I did 
I think being surrounded by that international environment, people of all different races and faiths and just everything they were, I sort of came to realize, like, if all these people live in all these different incredible ways and it works for all of them, and that's where they hail from, that's what their culture is, that's what their country, you know, like, how, how, who is anybody, me or any of these individual people to condemn what anybody else does if it works for them? So yeah, I guess that's why I personally tend to throw out anybody's ideologies of like, oh, this is like the way to be. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what's going to send you to hell. This is, I think it's very tempting if you're surrounded by people that have all the same values and morals and thoughts and lifestyle choices as you to feel like you're doing what's right. And I think that's like a really dangerous trap to fall into. It's not helpful and it's myopic and it's shitty. (laughs) Absolutely. I was going to say, I, I know we're like way over time or whatever, but hmm, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, I have four priests who are retired who help out at my church, and they're lovely, uh, but they have different takes on, on faith, right? And so one of them is a real traditionalist. And then another one is really kind of, um, I guess, on the radical side of Episcopalianism. So one the, the more radical one will say, you know, uh, we're pretty arrogant if we think that the only way God can manifest to humanity is in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, all these other, like Buddhism, or maybe not Buddhism, I don't know if there's a belief in God in Buddhism, but, you know, Hinduism and Judaism and Muslim, Islam, etc., all have these paths. God is bigger than any one of those faiths. Um, so I agree with that, and I agree with the other priest who, when he heard that priest say that, was kind of shaking his head. It's like, well, then what? what is this then? You know, I, I believe in Jesus as God, and that's what we're taught. And it would be heresy, frankly, at a certain level, or blasphemy, for me to say, oh, well, Christianity is just another form of uh, finding God. But I, I, I've, I've, I've lived a life amid too many other people of faith and no faith and saw the integrity in their lives to believe otherwise, you know. Uh, if it's only that you're saved through Christ, then um, then I've got more to learn. Um, but it's interesting to have those two examples of two different kinds of understanding of Christianity uh, and have them preach, you know, their own beliefs, uh, which, you know, one group will come to me after this guy's sermon and say, I have a problem with that. And some people will come to me after this guy's sermon and say, I have a problem with that. Uh, and there we are, one community. There we are, one community. Yeah. So I think I've lived a life amid too many other people of faith and no faith and saw the integrity in their lives to believe otherwise, you know. Uh, if it's only that you're saved through Christ, then um, then I've got more to learn. Hmm. Gosh, this is so fascinating. I want to do like five more of these. <laughs> Man, I'm going on vacation, so don't... <laughs> I do have two plugs to make. So there's a podcast that I participate in called Popping Collars, the intersection of religion and pop culture. So we'll talk about pop culture stuff, uh, but from a religious angle. And it's really loose. Uh, but Popping Collars, like priest collar, pop as in pop culture. So we'll include a link to Popping Collars, listeners. Check it out. Please do. And then I want to give a plug to my church. I mean, what the heck? You never know. Somebody might want to, since we're all online right now, uh, if you want to check out... Um, So I'm the rector, meaning the head priest at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California. And right now we are doing uh, Sunday services at 10 a.m. via Facebook Live. So you can find us on Facebook under stlukeslg.org, St. Luke's Los Gatos. 
and uh, join us at 10 a.m. Uh, it's a good little service. It's a, a little bit like a 1950s live show. You know, you never know what's going to happen because we're not super professional, but it's always it's got a lot of heart. Uh, and then we have um, William and I officiate morning prayer Mondays through Saturdays ever since we went into lockdown March 17th. So every Monday through Saturday at 9 a.m. you can go to our Facebook page. That's a little more ritualized. It's like a daily prayer. It's a very, you know, we, we read scripture and psalms and people find that it's a nice way to kind of start their day and structure their day, which, you know, these days can be so important when you feel structureless. Uh, so that's Mondays through Saturdays on our Facebook page as well. I commend those to you. Well, thank you so much, Father Rico. This was incredible. Thank you, Rico. Thank you. Well, that's part one of our religion episode. Next week, in part two, we'll hear from five different queer people of five different religions about how they reconcile their faith with their sexuality. We'll also answer a listener question about church, closets, and escorts. Ask Your Gay Uncle is created by Tom Truss and Ben Palacios, with production support by me, Jackie Anders. Album artwork by Seth Shellhouse. Theme song and musical interludes by Ben Palacios and Dan Reuter. This episode features additional music by Lionel O. Special thanks to Matt Marr and everyone who sent us questions. If you'd like to ask a question for Tommy and Ben to answer on the podcast, leave us a message at 512-981-7332 or email ask at askyourgayuncle.com. Find us on Facebook at Ask Your Gay Uncle Podcast. More information at askyourgayuncle.com.